It's here, November, and it's National Adoption Awareness Month. For several years, adoptees have been flipping the script and adding to the narrative what it means to those of us who were relinquished and adopted. Our voices are important to properly convey the true narrative of adoption. Thank you for being here. Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I met my next guest in an Enneagram book club this past summer, facilitated by Melissa Corkum, who can be heard on episode 87 of this podcast. You might not yet be familiar with this tool for growth, but today you will hear from Jennifer Hiltabaitl. And in just a short period of time, she has helped me to better understand how I have been processing my adoption journey for decades. Jennifer, through her daughters, has learned how to love the way another needs to be loved and the value of caring for her own story first so she can parent with intentionality In this episode, you will discover how she realized through the Enneagram that her core desire to be wanted and loved has permeated her entire life. According to her, Enneagram teachers believe that we are born with our personality types, but our lived experiences as children shape our personality. Allow me to introduce you to someone who, as an adoptee, is a teacher because she loves to learn and over the past 10 years has walked alongside adoptive moms on their journeys of pain and joy. It helps her to process her own chapters through a different viewpoint. Jennifer, I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. And because I'm a Jennifer too, and I love my birth name, Bonnie, Going forward in this conversation, feel free to call me Bonnie. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to call you Bonnie, and uh, maybe that'll keep the uh, listeners from being confused since we're both Jennifers. Yeah, a lot of people call me Bonnie, and so I always light up when I hear that. So there's things today, today I want to talk about that we chatted a little bit about a week or so ago. I know you're born in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Yes. And I know that you're a teacher and you have a master's degree in multicultural education. I really want you to talk a little bit about that too later. And you're in reunion as early as 17 with parts of your biological family, members of your biological family, and also perhaps what's most intriguing right now in my life, because I'm learning so much about it, is you're an Enneagram coach. And as you tell me that, it's not really considered a test. 
it's considered a tool for growth. And I, I just, the little bit of time I've been getting familiar with the Enneagram, I know that it could possibly be a really good source for adoptees to take a look at how they're viewing their adoption journey, their adoption story. So I know I said a mouthful there with uh, everything I like to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So wherever you want to start would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for having me on your podcast. Super excited to have this conversation with you. I will say I'm not currently teaching elementary school. So that was a passion of mine for a long time. Uh, I'm not in this season in life. Didn't want anyone to think that I'm still currently teaching. But yes, I will always be a teacher at heart. And I think that's one of the things that led me into the Enneagram work that I've been doing is just that I love to learn. I was a teacher because I loved being a student. And so here I am in this chapter working with the Enneagram. Yes. And I I forgot to mention you and your husband have one child through birth and one through international adoption. So you bring a lot to the community. You know, I'm here in the constellation of adoption, (laughs) right? As an adoptee and as an adoptive mom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about we'd start with being an adoptee growing up. And I guess we can like just keep the subject of the Enneagram going throughout this conversation if that works. Mm -hmm. And I know that you shared with me that you identify, please excuse me if I get the language a little off, just correct me, but your dominant number is two. And for those that maybe have never heard of the Enneagram, can you say or define it a little bit for us? Because I know there are nine numbers. Yeah, so there are nine different personality types, but it's less about taking a test to try to figure out, well, which of the nine numbers am I? And more about learning about our core motivations, our core longings, our core fears, our core weaknesses. Um, what it is that we, you know, long to hear, what motivates us in relationship and in the workplace. And so uh, it was pretty early on in my work with the Enneagram reading and learning and listening that I identified pretty quickly. Um, some people will take the years. For me, it was pretty quickly that I identified as an Enneagram type two. And as I look at my adoption story now through the lens of Uh, the Enneagram, I can see as many Enneagram teachers uh, will say that I was born with my Enneagram type, my personality type, but my environment surely had a lot to do with shaping that personality as I grew up. I came into my parents' home as a foster child. My biological brother uh, was already living with them as a baby and they wanted to adopt him. And the social worker um, on our case said, well, he has an older sister and we'd really like to keep the two of them together. And this was before there was any training on trauma or any preparation for uh, foster parents to become adoptive parents. The the resources that we now have available um, just weren't available for my parents. So they did some things that we all do as parents that... (laughs) were hurtful as well. And one of the things that I grew up knowing was that 
my younger brother was the one that they wanted because they wanted babies. My mom in particular wanted babies. And because I was three, they didn't really want to bring a toddler, a preschooler into their home, um, but they did it to get David. And that was a story that I heard from a really young age. And so for an Enneagram type two who longs to hear that they're wanted and loved, this was a, this is, was and is a really painful part of my story. I felt my interpretation as a child and a teen was that my first parents didn't want me and didn't love me. And that's why I was abandoned. And then my adoptive parents didn't want me and didn't love me um, for me, for who I was. And that's the lens in which I, I, I grew up and the lens in which I, I see the world now. I have more compassion now as a parent, as an, a, an adult for my birth parents as well as my adopted parents. But I can look back and see how hard I worked to help, to be a really good helper as an Enneagram 2 so that I would be appreciated for the work that I was doing. So therefore, I would receive that as love. So it's definitely the Enneagram is a tool in which to understand ourselves and to understand people around us. And I, I wish I would have had it at a younger age. I think I would have processed pieces of my story in healthier ways at a younger age if I had this as a tool then. Right. Yeah, when you told me that part of your story, yeah, it was heartbreaking to me for you to have felt that, you know, what what that feels like to not be wanted by birth parents and adoptive parents. It seems like an extra layer of pain. And so, yeah, I'm sorry that that happened. Thank you. I, I know my mom really, really appreciates um, and loves that I'm in her life now. I said to her recently, as I was helping, I'm, I'm caring for her in her late seventies. Um, and with the loss of my stepfather last year and just spending a lot of time taking care of all of the things for her. And I said something in a teasing way, but I was like, wow, I still have to figure out what to do with some of this pain that sometimes I feel like I've already dealt with, but it just rears its little head again. But I said to her, I I guess you're glad now uh, that you took a chance on that little redhead girl, since I'm the one here now helping you. And uh, her response was what I was longing, even as an adult, to hear her say was, oh, I've wanted you and loved you from the beginning, not just because of the help you're giving me, but because you're my daughter and I love you. And she didn't, but in her, you know, simple way, grabbed my hands and said, well, I didn't know it then, but I really appreciate it now. In other words, I really appreciate having a daughter now. Um, So it still wasn't what I wanted to hear. And I thought, wow, I think sometimes we do that in life. We we still are longing, even as adults, for to hear our parents say what that missing message or that wounded childhood message is. We, we're still longing to hear them <laughs> say what we want to hear. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So would you say you had a happy childhood? Uh, I'm, I'm sad to say no. There are definitely, there are a few core happy memories. One of the things I can remember is that my dad took us on top of a, we had a small, we we lived on um, about eight acres and we had a shed that you could climb up on the roof and 
we could see fireworks um, on July 4th from that shed. And I remember, you know, thinking that was so amazing that our dad let us climb up on the roof and we could watch, you know, fireworks from there. I spent a lot of time as a mom trying to give my children a happy childhood. I've, 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 for many years as a mom, I was focused on giving my children the childhood that I wished that I would have had. So although there were gifts that my parents gave me, my faith, my work ethic, um, the gift of extended family of aunts and uncles and cousins, I know I did not grow up um, having a happy childhood. Well, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. I, I often think about adoptees who have had to really struggle in their adoptive families and how that's just makes, I, I would say, bad matters worse, being relinquished and then, mm-hmm. yeah, not going into a good environment. So it's like more work that, that adoptees have, and, and it is heartbreaking to hear that. And I yeah. know that, I, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, Bonnie. I I will say that when I, you're exactly right. I think that double, the double pain, um, like I'm envious of your story because your parents, you knew you were wanted and loved by your parents and you had such a good relationship with them. And I've always, as an adoptee, when I hear those stories, I get a little bit jealous of adoptees, but I'm grateful that there right. that there are adoptees who have grown up with a healthy childhood. But what I will say is that when I met my biological parents who were no longer together, but I, I was really young and didn't, you know, this was in the late 80s and early 90s and, and we did not have, uh, th- teens weren't in therapy as commonly as they are now. And I didn't have an adult walking me through this experience. And now I'm just like, I can't imagine. Um, It was a lot between the ages of 17 and 21. But as I uncovered and discovered pieces of my first story, my first family, it did give me an appreciation for what I might have been exposed to had I not been adopted. Mm -hmm. So I do have a gratitude I do have gratitude for what my parents gave me in terms of an education. You know, I was fed, I was clothed. My emotional needs were not met. They just weren't prepared to parent. Mm-hmm. And yet, knowing some of the pieces of my story, if my birth mother and birth father had stayed together and had raised me, I. I would have been exposed to a lot of things that would have been harmful. And so one of the gifts I received in reunion was for the first time in my life as a young 20 something was an appreciation for my adoption, even though it was not done well and it wasn't a happy childhood. I can say, Oh, okay. Thank God I was adopted. But it, it doesn't mean that it's been easy. It's just that I have a, an appreciation for the fact that I was, I don't ever want to use the word rescued in terms of adoption because that's not the case. But I was removed from an unsafe situation and had a different, I had a, a different life because of that. Yeah. I understand exactly what you mean. Yeah. I think in reunion, Adoptees, we often find answers to our questions uh, 
And it mm-hmm. does kind of sh- maybe shift our perspective on mm-hmm. whether our adoptive parents were able to provide better situations for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And addiction was involved and I didn't, of course, uh, know anything about addiction at that point in my life. And now as an adult, I think about how another gift that was given to me in reunion was learning that my abandonment didn't have anything to do with me. That if I had been another child in that situation, it was about the two adults involved. It was about the two parents mm-hmm. that weren't able to parent any child at that point. Now, my birth mother has parented since then, but she wasn't at that time in her life able to parent. But I grew up thinking, of course, as a child and a teenager, it was my fault. I wasn't lovable. I was unwanted. It, it, there was something about me that made me unlovable. And now, again, hearing pieces of the story and everybody's story is different, I can now more objectively on this side say, ah, this would have happened regardless of whether it was me or not. And that's been really freeing to realize that it had nothing to do with who I was as a three little three-year-old or two-year-old person. It was the two adults involved. Right. And had I not had the, the opportunity and the blessing of meeting my biological family, I would still be carrying that into my 50s. Right. Yeah, like we're around the same age. And I remember when you said that you had been in reunion as young as 17, well, between 17 and 21, I thought, wow, like that's mm. that's a long time. And many years to to kind of unpack things and and i guess revisit the experience and and i'm glad you shared your emotional needs were not met because though it may not be um abuse of another kind uh it's just as important and and i remember mm-hmm. feeling that i kind of had to carry my own emotional labor of of whatever I was going through. I was kind of on my own. And I I don't know if I would say it was emotional abuse, but I do remember there wasn't space for me to be emotional or to Mm -hmm. ask things of an emotional nature as it related to being adopted. That was quite often shut down. So, yeah, I think that's an important point not having emotional needs met, particularly for adoptees. I, I, I'm sure everybody, but yeah, I, I think about that a lot more now. And, you know, we met in um, the Enneagram Book Club facilitated by Melissa, who you work closely with, with the Adoption Connection podcast. And yeah. I discovered pretty much in a solid way that I am a dominant five And so as I look at my adoption story, I am realizing that the environment supported me not sitting with my emotions. Like I'm really starting to understand that because as a five, I am more of the thinking um, part of being a human being, you know. Mm 
Right. It's your center of intelligence is thinking. Yes. And you brought something to my attention from my book that, um, and I just, I really appreciate Mm. you taking the time to read it. That thinking was all like, clearly that's what I was doing, even with my words and describing my experience. So that's pretty interesting to me. You and I talked about this last week. It made such an impression on me that somebody in your story said, you know, what are you feeling? And you were, or what do you feel about your adoption? And I was like, wow, I would have loved if someone would have asked me that question <laughs> when I was a young child, but your feelings were not uh, yet to be spoken of. Now for you as a five, you're like, well, what do I think about my adoption? I can tell you what I think about it. Right. Uh, but it was just even that you were asked that question is interesting. And I think I don't remember if it was a classmate, somebody that wasn't super close to you. But I remember in the era that we grew up, it was a taboo subject. Like my daughter now, it's like adoption isn't necessarily part of her identity right now at all. Like it, it, you know, she identifies by a lot of other things, but being an adoptee is not one of them where that was the the foremost thing. Like people ask, like when I was introducing myself in college or whatever, it was, and I was adopted <laughs> and I just met my biological family. Um, so it was such a, um, it was in the forefront, but it was such a taboo subject mm-hmm. for so long that it, both in my home, but then I remember a story in a grocery store where we would get asked frequently, my brother and I, where did you get your beautiful red hair? And I would be so annoyed because my dad, my parents had like dark olive skin and black hair and my dad would say things like, oh, you know, God gave it to them. Or, um, you know, his dad had red hair when he was little. And, and as I aged, I would just, you know, we'd encounter these situations. And I would say, we're adopted. <laughs> and the, per- the person would kind of do a 180 and leave that aisle of the grocery store. <laughs> and, and I thought, ah, I can shut down this topic really easily. People will stop asking me nosy questions if I... Right. <laughs> if I just blurt blurt out that I'm adopted. But right. now that's not the case. It's a more, you know, as my daughter was little and didn't look at all like me in the grocery store, we adopted her from China. I would get a lot of inquisitive people. My own personal experience was overlaid on what was happening, right? And so I was remembering those grocery store experiences when I was a little girl. So I was really defensive. And probably curt, and is a nice word, probably not kind, is a more accurate word of strangers who would approach me when Cameron was a baby in the grocery store, only to discover that almost every little lady or or older gentleman that was asking me a question about her had some connection to adoption. Mm. And that's why they were asking. I did still get the ignorant thing. I just thought, wow we're living in a different era when it comes to adoption. So when I read your book, I'm still, I'm still in the process of finishing it. I, in the, in the first couple chapters, I was just, I was joking with you, Bonnie, about how <laughs> you did so much research as an Enneagram vibe about your story. And I'm like, how is she feeling? And like, it had not dawned on me ever to like go, what? happening in 1967 in Philadelphia that may have played a role, you know, during my birth year or three years later, 1970, what was happening that might have in Philadelphia that might have played a role in my, uh, you know, abandonment and my birth parents story. So it's just interesting to see here we are two adoptees around the same age. We're not monoliths and we have different experiences. And then 
with our different personality types, our different Enneagram types, we're definitely processing our adoption experience through different lenses. Yeah, like when you brought that to my attention, I was like, wow, so true. Because I, I love research. I love digging deep. You know, I do deep dives into to learning as much as I can about whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, I have, and I'm eager at times to share, you know, if, if I think it can be helpful, this information, right? Mm-hmm. I'm eager mm-hmm. to share it if, if someone asks. But if you don't ask me, I just you know, I typically don't volunteer it. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in the book club with Melissa, the Enneagram book club, is seeing the differences between the numbers. And you have talked with me about like trying on other numbers, which I think is yeah. like that's just a fabulous idea. So I can try on the type two or the type nine or the, you know, six and and discover that maybe it's not my go-to or it doesn't come to me naturally, but it's something that can be very useful so that I can live a balanced life. We, we talked about that too, a more holistic life, and it's so possible. Right, and it's not like we can change our dominant Enneagram type. We, we are who we are, but we have access to those numbers on either side of us, as well as the numbers or the paths we go to when we're stressed or when we're in security. But one of the things that's changed for me in just working with Melissa at the Adoption Connection is learning that, for example, for an Enneagram 2, I have a move to an Enneagram 8 and, and the unhealthy sides of an Enneagram 8 when I'm unhealthy or when I'm stressed. But really what I'm learning is that I have access to the strength of an Enneagram 8 as well. And an, and an Enneagram, a type 8 is someone who's going to take a control over the situation. If somebody else in the room isn't in control, they're going to oftentimes say things how they are and not worry about people being offended. They're going to stand up for justice for the underdog and all of that. And I remember as a child and a teenager, I had a pretty, I was dealing with a lot of anger for good reason, I might add. But in my family, I was accused of having a bad temper because I had red hair. And I remember being so offended by that and seeing the injustice of it all. And now as I learn about the Enneagram, I think, ah, little to me needed that side of the eight to survive what I was in having access to that type eight helped me stand up for myself, helped me escape some abusive situations. And now as a more healthier adult, I have not reached um, full health. Of course, that'll be a lifetime journey. I love trying on the healthy side of an eight, not just, you know, I'm not losing my temper in an unhealthy way as an eight as often, but reaching out to that eight and saying, ah, what could I try on? What would what would an eight, a healthy eight, do in this situation? Right. Okay, they're going to say it how it is, and they're going to defend um, the person here that needs defending. Um, right. And I remember you saying, like, you have a move to a seven, right, as a type five, and how we're both practicing trying on spontaneity because it's not something that comes um, easily to us. But it's fun to learn the strength of other numbers and say, wow, we would really all benefit if we would start to practice some of the things that are healthy for other numbers. Exactly. 
In fact, I just practiced spontaneity a couple of weeks ago when I went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I hadn't been yet. I heard wonderful things about it. And typically, I would research it to the (laughs) bone. I would find out every restaurant, you know, like, and I absolutely didn't do that. I got in my car and I just drove that way. (laughs) And the whole day was spontaneous, everything. And I remember thinking, this is fun. Like this is this is what I have been missing out on. Like I need I need to do more of that. And the Enneagram has really helped me to look at things that don't come natural to me, that aren't the first thing I think to do. And I know other people they're very spontaneous. That's that's their go to. Right. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm learning so much and you are so knowledgeable and I know that the listener may want to know a little bit more about your reunion because you have been Mm -hmm. in reunion for a while. And I know you share it with me, and I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but you share it with me, the letter that you kept from your birth mom as a reminder. So if there's anything you'd like to say after all these years in reunion. I think one of the things that's maybe different for your listeners, as I've just listened to a few of yours uh, recently, is is learning that adoptees in their 40s and 50s are having access to information about their biological family because of genetic testing sites and things like that. And I found my biological family before the internet thing, before we had smartphones. And so my story is just very different from adoptees who are currently, you know, finding reunion experiences with biological family. So I was a senior in high school and working with my guidance counselor. My brother was in some trouble during that time. So he was trying to meet with me to, to kind of put the whole picture together about what was happening in our home. And, and then he was interested in me and invested in me. And, and I had been having a lot of dreams and he was asking me questions about that and said, I think those are probably people from your, your biological family. And this was 1985. And he said, have you ever considered looking for your biological family. And I said, no, why would I do that? They didn't want me in the first place. Why would I look them up? And only to find out, yeah, no, they really didn't want you. And he said, I was 17. He said, would you be okay? I have a social worker friend. Um, Would you be okay if the two of us kind of looked into it and see if we could find out any information? And I was like, you are welcome to Mr. Clemens. But I, you know, didn't expect anything to come of it and just went on my um, busy way. I was a few months before my high school graduation. Mm. Well, a month later, just a month later, he said that his friend had found my adoption records in the courthouse and that it had my maternal and paternal grandparents, their first and last names listed on my adoption record. So she could send a letter to them asking for more information. I needed to go home because I wasn't 18. My records were still closed and I needed permission from my parents in order to send that letter. And that's one of the only times I saw my mom cry in her life. It's just a handful of times. And she cried that day and said she was afraid. She knew she wasn't a good mom and she was afraid that I would leave her to be with my birth mother. Mm. And I assured her, that she was my mom. I wasn't going anywhere. I just wanted to know who did I look like and where did I come from? So one of the best gifts she ever gave me was 
signing that letter as my mom, that she gave permission for the social worker to write those letters to my um, biological grandparents. And so that's how the journey started. I, I soon received a letter actually directly from my birth mother with information about where she lived, where my biological father lived, and even more special to me was a biological half-sister who lived really close to me geographically. And then that's how it started. I didn't meet my biological father and his side of the family until some years later, about four years later. But the letter you're referring to, Bonnie, is we were invited, my half-sister and I were invited by my birth mother when I was about 19 to a party at her house in Philadelphia. And what we didn't know, she had two small children at that time and was married and um, an artist. And a lot of the people in attendance of the party were artists. And they wanted to know if my half-sister and I were there to be painted, like if we were there as models. And we realized that nobody knew who we were. Mm. And I was just devastated that I was put in this situation. So again, at 19, without a therapist and without any adults guiding me, I wrote a very 19-year-old letter to her about how hurt I was by this experience. We ended up leaving the party. And I received a letter back that was very, very, very painful basically, you know, blaming me for coming back into her life and and expecting things that I didn't deserve. And it was a really harsh letter. And recently, my husband, I had forgotten about it. There was an exchange of a letter after that, a couple years later, where I wanted to have peace with the situation and just let it be and haven't had contact with her since. But I, I had forgotten about this letter and had some photos that my cousin had given me recently that I was putting together uh, in an album and, and my husband pulled out this letter and was horrified at what the letter said and was just so angered for me. And I said, I was very calm and he was surprised. And I said, well, I've held, I've held on to that letter all these years as a reminder of why I'm not in current relationship with my biological mother because as an Enneagram 2 I think that I can be in relationship with everybody (laughs) and it was really difficult for me to accept that even still I'm still practicing the fact that I cannot be in healthy relationship with everybody Mm -hmm. sometimes as adoptees we have experiences with our first families or with our adoptive families where we you know, I would say I'm grateful for having met her and for some photos that she gave me. But also I was going to be welcoming a whole bunch of pain into my life that at 19 I was not equipped to handle. I don't know if I would be here at 55 either. Right. And so so being in reunion sometimes is a loose words for me, right? Because I have had long-term relationships with members of my biological father's side, but I'm not in current relationship with my biological mother. And that's okay. Right. I'm so glad you shared that. It's It's okay to meet people in our stories, receive what they have to give us or not give us, and to not have to, to think we have to then say that we have an obligation as adoptees to stay in unhealthy places. Um, And so 
it took me a long time to accept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, certainly at 19. That, yeah, that's and not having the tools that are available now. Right. Makes a big difference right. too. Yeah, because I'm picturing at 19. Oh, I I would have been a mess. <laughs> I would... Yeah, I'm a mess. I, I I can see myself as a mess as a, as a parent, a 20 year old, and I think, oh goodness, goodness <laughs> gracious, I didn't have any. Yeah, no wonder not all of that went super well um, yeah. because I didn't have the resources to help me through it, to help you process it. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to say to you, Bonnie, is that another gift of that story, even though it was painful, and the other many, many, many members of my biological family that I met and I'm still in contact with, Meeting them so early in my life, unlike some of the adult adoptees I've met on this side, gave me decades of space to grow without having that big gap of who do I look like? Where did I come from? Why did this happen? Because some of those questions got answered early on. Literally just knowing who I look like was just filled a space in me that was just a gaping hole up until that point but I didn't have to I didn't have to go through all the way through my 30s 40s and 50s with those questions because they were answered so early for me right I get that yeah I can see that Mm. so you recently told me that with the adoptee I'm sorry the Enneagram book club that was the first time you had really been in a space where it was just adoptees getting to know one another and learning together and and you expressed how that felt yeah you're right I maybe it's because I met my biological family early and I processed so much of my story early in my 20s into my I I was still processing and yes I'm still it's a still ongoing process but I dealt with so much of so many of the big big questions and issues in my early and mid to late 20s that I didn't go searching for other adoptees again before the internet right so as a teacher I had the the opportunity to mentor a young guy who you know, a young fourth grade student who was struggling with, you know, big questions about his adoption story. And he had been adopted as a baby. And that was really life giving to me to come alongside of a, a young adoptee. And then as I became a parent, and then a parent through adoption, I had so much connection with other moms who adopted littles, right. And then over the last 10 years, I've worked with moms just in the support role, encouraging adoptive moms who are parenting children through adoption who come from hard places with with lots of trauma. And so that's been really good for me too, to just see moms intentionally sacrificing to meet the emotional and physical and mental needs of their children. But this summer with Melissa Corkum was the first time that I, it was Zoom, it was on Zoom, but it was the first time I sat in a room and there were only what, six of us mm-hmm. that, all had experienced adoption and all except Melissa had also 
um, walkthrough reunion with biological family. And I couldn't believe how life-giving that was to me. It, I didn't even know I needed it. <laughs> but to to just have that commonality, to be known, like the head nodding that we did, right. right? When someone was sharing was so, was just so encouraging to be in a room with, I, I just have, I personally have, you know, until this summer, never experienced peers who were adopted. And then you and Sari Easterly and a few others have just introduced me to a world out there of adoptees, adult adoptees, not young, not teen adoptees like I've worked with, who are, you know, supporting one another and making changes in the way um, adoption happens in the United States. And just, you've been part of panels and you've been writing together and it's it's just so exciting to me. I'm, I'm just so grateful that you've introduced this whole population to me that I didn't know was coordinated and organized and you know, one person in our book club was going on a retreat this summer, yes. Labor Day weekend, I think, you know, with just a, with just an adult adoptees. And I was like, oh, wow, I just didn't even know because I wasn't looking. Right. I didn't know this even existed. Yeah, it's pretty special. I, I think this adoptee movement right now is is in full effect. Yeah. And then and then when you introduced me to, you know, once upon a time in adoptee land, I was like, she's had 80 interviews with like she knows 80 people um, who are adult. And I thought, I, I, I know I know I'm number three. You know, like I just, <laughs> it's crazy to me that there's so many adult adoptees working together and writing and speaking and supporting. And I, I had no idea. I'm so, so thankful you've introduced me to this world. Well, thank you for being being there, being an, a part of the community, doing the work that you do. Because like you said, it is a constellation. You said that you, you love that word versus triad, mm-hmm. and I would have to agree. It's a, bit, it's a lot bigger than a triad. Right. I've heard that that term has been used a lot in my life. Somebody even gave me a necklace once. A, a beautiful friend gave me a necklace that had a triangle on it, you know, symbolizing uh, the adoption triad. And then you introduced me to this word and I thought, yes, because it's aunts and uncles and cousins. <laughs> and, you know, I, my biological uncle is the one who connected me um, with that side of the family. And I met, you know, I knew his mom, my biological grandmother for you know two decades before she passed away and her sisters, my great aunt um, and their children, which are like, second cousins and their children, which are, I don't even know what they are, but those are the, the important people now in my life. And they're not part of the triad. Right. Exactly. I'm thinking of nieces and nephews. And I just recently had a great nephew be born. And I'm like, it's pretty big. It's pretty bigger than three sides. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I think you've answered my question that I was going to ask that I asked most guests of what has been the most rewarding thing. You know, I think you, you answered it just, just being able to see just everything that's available to us, the different platforms and being able to sit on a zoom with other adoptees and learn of their journeys and, and just be in fellowship with one another. Is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I I guess because I do a lot of work with adoptive parents, I I could 
I don't know who all of your listeners are, but I'm sure there's some adoptive parents that listen. And I think what I would want them to hear is that, yes, there was a lot of pain and new trauma and secondary abandonment that came into my life upon reunion with biological family. But the void it filled in my life, the questions that it answered, the identity that was sealed for me, I would do it all over again. That it's worth that anything in life, right? There's there's just hard that comes with reunion. There's pain that comes with reunion, but it's worth it. And I think as adoptive parents, we're sometimes afraid to have hurt come into our child's life and we try to protect them. But for those of you who are keeping adoption an open topic who are protecting and keeping pieces of your child's story for them and sharing it with them in spite of your own feelings. I I just applaud it because yes, one of the blessings on this side of my story is that I had that, I had the blessing of that void being closed, that gap being filled. And then the other thing is I was prepared to be abandoned again. As much as one can prepare for that, I thought, well, if they didn't want me in the first place, they wouldn't want me now. And yet what I wasn't prepared for was the grandmother, my grandmother and her sisters who loved me so beautifully, who had wondered about me, who did want me in their lives. And so there are surprises along the way that you can't possibly predict either. So, yeah, I'm not sure, Bonnie, what your original question was, but um, thinking about, you know, what would I want the audience to know? about my lived experience, which is, again, it's everybody's is different. I, yeah, have so, so much to be grateful for. Yeah, you did answer the question. And I'm glad. (laughs) Yeah, you did. um, Because the question is about what's Mm -hmm. most rewarding about being connected Mm -hmm. to the adoption community, which includes, you know, being an adoptive parent or birth parents, just not adoptees. It's all of us. And, and really all the other members of our family. So, yeah, because they're connected, too. (laughs) And I do do feel this unique connection to people like you, Bonnie, and people that were in our book group, even though maybe out in the world outside of that discussion or that connection, we may not have anything in common. Like, would you become friends? without this commonality, but there's, there's something so fulfilling and life-giving about being in community with people who have shared similar, not exactly the same, but similar experience who have searched, who have found, or who are searching and haven't found, but walking alongside or just being in a conversation with people with that common ground Mm -hmm. is, is uh, one of the biggest things I didn't know I needed at 55. Yeah. I've often said that I'm pretty sure I wouldn't know half the people or even most of the people that I know in the community if I hadn't been adopted. And something about that wow. kind of makes me sad. So I, wow. yeah, I have yeah. to I have to give that consideration. That's a part of being an adoptee, that I got to meet some really extraordinary, amazing adoptees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much loss and there's ambiguous loss and there's ambiguous grief, right? For us as adoptees, there's so much, but being connected with 
other adoptees brings a lot of validation and connection mm-hmm. that doesn't doesn't erase the loss and the ongoing ambiguous grief that we experience, but it sure does bring something so positive and powerful yeah. into our story. It does yeah. something quite meaningful. Yes. You can't leave without telling me what projects you're currently working on <laughs> to help other adoptees because you're doing so much. One of the things that I'm so excited about, Bonnie, is just like the book discussion group we had this summer through the Adoption Connection, um, Melissa asked if I would lead one for young adults ages 18 to 25 to talk about the Enneagram uh, with Suzanne Stabile's book, The Journey Toward Wholeness, and do that book discussion group with young adults. And so this fall, we're starting that group. And if you're listening to this, feel free to, to reach out and email me. If you know someone in that age group, I'd love to connect with them. It's the group that I wish I would have had. 17 to 21, you know, 18 to 25, if I would have had a group of young adult, you know, peers with someone who was on the other side, walking me through some of the uh, pieces of my story I was experiencing, I would have been so grateful. So I'm super excited. Um, I'm not sure that all young adult group, uh, young adult adoptees are, are ready to be, you know, are self-aware enough or, or in a season where they can be vulnerable but knowing how powerful it was for me to be part of a peer group this summer, I'm excited to offer that this fall and hopefully yeah, maybe even another group in the new year. So that's currently a project I'm super excited about. Yes, you should be. That's great. And when you said it, if you had had something like this at the young age you were mm-hmm. being in reunion, it would probably have definitely made a big difference for the better. <laughs> It yeah. sure would have. Yeah, sure I, would have. I'm glad you're doing that. I'll be sure and include um, any information pertaining to that in the show notes. Okay. We covered quite a bit here, and <laughs> I guess we can wrap it up. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? I don't think so. As you and I talked leading up to this, I, I wondered what I had to offer because I haven't <laughs> written a book yet, and I... Um, I don't have a website to refer people to. And I think, you know, as we were talking, it's like if there's just one person out there who, you know, hears hope or feels validated or feels encouraged in their adoption journey, then I'm I'm glad to, you know, have this conversation with you and share that with the world. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. I really am. And I, I just want to say this for those that maybe – never heard of the Enneagram before and you're like, what are they talking about? Like, what is this two and yeah. five? And <laughs> Yeah, because I had never heard of it prior to this year. I, I, If I did, I did not recall it. And I was like, yeah. what? And I thought I knew, you know, knew about these kinds of ways of kind of seeing how you're wired. And so if you haven't, if someone listening, if you haven't, heard of the Enneagram, or you just want to learn more about it, what what would you suggest, Jennifer, that they do first? Oh, there's so many good books out there. I mean, I would be willing to do, you know, a free 30-minute consultation, and we can include my Calendly in the the notes. If somebody wants to talk to me and, and learn more, I love to do those free consultations to find out, you know, whether we would be a good match for one another and sort of doing an Enneagram coaching experience where you 
I was able to teach you, but then um, you were able to do some self-discovery um, along the way. But there are so many good books. I recommend Ian Cron's book, C-R-O-N, um, and Susan, Suzanne Sabeel. They wrote The Road Back to You, and Suzanne has The Path Between Us and The Journey Toward Wholeness. Those are my favorites. And Ian Cron has another uh, new book out this year, uh, The Story of You. And that was really, that's a really good tool as well. But I would start with the road back to you. It just introduces each of what the Enneagram is and each of the, the nine types. Yeah. And it, it's really about learning and discovering, you know, self-discovery. Very good. Yes. So I just want to thank you again for having this conversation with me. It's been quite a joy. It was an honor, Bonnie. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel like Jennifer's sharing her experience with the Enneagram nicely picked up where Melissa's episode left off. I'm happy to learn more about how a tool for growth has helped them, and they lovingly share it with others so we, too, can reap its benefits. I'm fascinated by Jennifer's reunion with her birth mother at 17 years old and birth father at 21, being decades ago when DNA and the Internet weren't at her disposal. She has had many years to process her identity as an adoptee, and I can only wonder if I had known my original identity in the 1980s, how my life would be so different today. There are advantages and disadvantages to the time in an adoptee's life when we decide to pursue search and reunion. I don't believe we can get it wrong. Things have a way of working out depending on one's perspective. Though Jennifer experienced the heartbreak of secondary rejection by her first mother, she appreciates knowing that she got answers to some of her questions sooner rather than later in life unlike so many adoptees. It is often in reunion when we learn what life-giving relationships look like or not. And it might mean keeping a letter as a reminder of what does or doesn't support our well-being. We can be unapologetic in choosing to not maintain relationships with biological family members who don't have our best interests in mind. Thank you, Jennifer, my namesake, for having this conversation with me. I'm happy to hear you speak of this tool for growth called the Enneagram anytime. I know that it has already helped me to better process my adoption journey. It is my knowing that I'll continue to learn more through you, Melissa, and others who are knowledgeable about its rewards. I believe other adopted people can too. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.